Planet Pod, essential listening for everyone who cares about the planet. Hello and welcome to this edition of Planet Pod with me, Amanda Carpenter, which is produced in partnership with Chelsea Green Publishing UK. Chelsea Green, an employee-owned independent publisher, see publishing as a tool for cultural change and ecological stewardship. Their books not only look and feel beautiful, printed on recycled paper with vegetable-based inks, they provide readers with hands-on information on organic food, nature conservation and the environment, on gardening and ecology, on sustainable economics, progressive politics and farming. I'm at risk of using one of the many COVID cliches today, but so many of us have used this enforced time at home away from jobs or working in our home spaces, not our offices, to connect a bit more to the natural world around us, whether it's a garden or a window box or the local park or even a wild green margin in a more urban space. Our two guests today embody that connection with natural spaces, wild and not so wild. It's a great pleasure to welcome back Bridget Strawbridge Howard to Planet Pod, who joined us last year to talk about her lovely book, Dancing with Bees, which was shortlisted for the Wainwright Prize 2020. Bridget, hello, and thanks so much for coming back. Hello, Amanda. It's lovely to be here. My second guest, Matt Rees Warren, is an ecological gardener, designer and writer and the author of a beautiful and immensely practical new book, The Ecological Gardener. Matt, welcome to Planet Pod and thanks for joining us. Uh, thank you. Matt, I was really excited and delighted to receive a copy of your book in the post. That is the one perk of doing um, shows with authors is that occasionally the publishers send us a free book. <laughs> and not only did it come with a packet of seeds, which is wonderful, yeah. it came with a kind of wealth of information and knowledge, but in a really, really accessible form. And I'm a kind of a bit of a gardening book nut and I've got lots but so often I get halfway through and I turn off because it's all Latin names and <laughs> impossible spaces. And I think, you know, I don't have the room or the money to do this. So so your book is really rooted in making gardens happen for real people in real spaces, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, gardening's for everyone. And uh, I certainly wanted to sort of make the book a manual, a guide um, for people to be able to do things with their own hands. Um, it's certainly got uh, elements of it, which is about changing mindset and philosophy. But, um, you know, really, I did want it to sort of, you know, get thumb worn and covered in soil and, you know, be left in the greenhouse because I did want you to, to do what's in the book, to try these things out, to sort of, you know, be unafraid to fail, you know, like, as you say, sort of, um, gardening and, and garden sort of paraphernalia and then all of the sort of associated sort of uh, nomenclature is, is very dense and sometimes it's a little bit overwhelming and um, but really actually gardening is just for everyone and so I love the practicality of gardening and um, the ideas of sort of trying to do practical things in an ecological way I didn't want that to sort of ever seem unattainable I wanted it to, to be sort of extremely accessible for everyone to try these things, even if they seem completely alien and completely new. But you have a background as a formal gardener, don't you? I mean, you've worked in on, on big gardens as well. You haven't always just been yeah. you know, somebody who's looked at their own space and writing. How has some of that more formal training sort of made its way into, into the book and the way that you approach gardening today? Well, yeah, I think it is the bedrock of um, my gardening philosophy because um i am 
and do come from um, professional gardening. So yeah, I've worked in spaces where, um, you know, it's a public garden, it's public facing, I have pressures, uh, I have deadlines, I have budgets. And so it did give me a grounding in understanding the horticultural world, first and foremost, and understanding what um, people love and admire about gardens within that. Um, so, it, it, you know, that gives you a grounding that helps you to understand that you need to be more broad in your thoughts um, because people do love style. They do love aesthetics. Um, they do love things to be sort of the way that they like them in the styles that they see in, in glossy magazines or, uh, you know, at the National Trust gardens and uh, RHS gardens and what have you. So I understand that world really, really well. And uh, I wanted this book to kind of bring about elements of wildlife gardening and permaculture and, and no dig and try and meld it into um, that more kind of aesthetical and high level, um, you know, gardening sort of ethos that is more prevalent in those sort of public garden spaces. And I would say, you know, I mean, we all love a, a National Trust garden and the whole experience, but very often they don't appear to be as wildlife friendly and as natural and as accessible as the sorts of gardens that I think you're encouraging us to create in your book, they do. There's that degree of formality, isn't there? And, and, and while I can appreciate, you know, you were saying people like that, they like to see things as they see them in magazines. Do you feel there's a changing mood and that we'd actually like our gardens to be just a little bit scruffier and just a little bit friendlier to plants and wildlife generally? Yeah. I mean, when I was writing this book, I was trying to avoid going into the um, institutions, but I, do completely agree that, that that they are the style makers and they are what um, people are going to take as their inspiration. And it can get quite difficult if the National Trust, say, want to do a garden that is set in time. I, I do kind of understand that at times, like, but at other times, yeah, I think they're, they're, to me, they're sort of slow moving tankers, you know, they can't change that quickly. Whereas we're like skips, we can kind of, as soon as the wind changes, we can move. And, and so that, I, I like that idea of giving it to the individual, but Yes, I totally think so. I think they are trying. I'm not saying that the RHS and the National Trust aren't trying, um, but yeah, there is a prevalence within those uh, institutions to garden a certain way. And, and that's been embedded for quite a long time and they're finding that quite difficult to remove from themselves. The RHS still don't um, practice completely organic methods and, and um, you know, the National Trust still don't really um, stop from cutting their lawns to, you know, 10 millimeters. So I think just more and more conversation, more and more sort of, uh, you know, talk and, and message of, of, of different things from places like the wildlife trusts and, and plant life, encourage them and, and, and help them to move people into new styles, I think. Really important if we're thinking about supporting our pollinators, isn't it, Bridget? Because, you know, an immaculately mown lawn is a desert to a pollinator, isn't it? And we need those untidy, scruffy, wild spaces for, for those insects to be able to thrive and, and breed. And we're so desperately dependent on them. That's so important. Um, but just quickly on the on the lawn thing, if, if you were to go the other way and let all of your lawns grow into wildflower meadows, you could be taking away habitat from some of our ground nesting solitary bees, some of the mining bees that actually have a preference for compacted sort of soil and short grass and sparsely vegetated areas. So, so, and that's something I hadn't thought of until a few years ago. And, and you know, I, I've been just 
seed bombing everywhere and, and letting everything grow wild and becoming the laziest gardener. But but now I I, I do a little bit of of both. I I I think more carefully now. Really, my first question is what are the requirements for for the pollinators? And uh, and the other thing that I have to do is sit and wait because we we live in rented um, houses and and you know we can't be sure that that we're ever going to see out whatever we do, whatever garden plan we we set out. Um, so I, I have not been able to do that sit and wait for a full year <laughs> before we do anything type of gardening. But and I've realised that that's been to the detriment of of, of the garden. So yeah, it, it's we've we're about to leave our little garden. Actually, we have a a garden behind our house in Shaftesbury, which we have planted entirely with pollinators and more widely with wildlife in mind. And it's taken two and a half years um, for it to go from it was a barren desert. It was a lawn, um, literally just a lawn and a path, and there was one pond, and it's now it's a wild wildlife haven and i i see it mostly from my window because we look out down onto the garden and i've lost count now i did start to to make a list of all the different the, the new species that arrived every year and and i, I have literally lost count now um, so it's going to be very very hard to leave that behind but um yeah very very important and the wild areas um not just for, for the bees and, and pollinators but for all the other invertebrates um, and small mammals as well kind of see it now as a as a whole thing rather than just they used to just garden for pollinators um, and now I see it more holistically so I really love the sat of your book yeah that, that sounds perfect for someone like me who who gardens but I don't think of myself as a gardener um, I, I lack confidence um, often so so the kind of book that that gives me permission to try all of these different ways and, and offers me the tools that obviously your book offers um, it sounds like exactly the sort of book that that I would use to now myself I'd love it I hope I can get a hold of a coffee from from Chelsea Green soon that's very kind yeah I mean I do think that that's the the absolute right approach um you know um I'm certainly not advocating that every lawn turn to uh, long grass and a wildflower meadow because there'll be practicalities I have two, two small little girls and um, they need short grass to sort of sit on and play. And, um, but as, as you say, they, they, they can use that to find sort of wildlife within that or under logs of things, you know, so that there's, there's, there's nothing to, there's right or wrong about doing anything like this. It's, it's just about trying, um, just sort of try new things, uh, you know, think a little bit differently. Um, and, um, you'll be amazed if, if, if they're saying that it, it's a great figure, but I hope it's true that there's 3 million new gardeners in the UK now, then uh, if they're all coming to it fresh, then they're not sort of encumbered by maybe some of the older traditional methods. So uh, hopefully they just sort of plunge in and not be afraid by it. But I've, I've certainly seen so much fear with gardening. So throughout my um, career, so definitely a lack of that, I think is always the first step. Yeah, I think it's key, isn't it? That that kind of demystifying and making it accessible and and feeling that even if we have a small patch, 
we don't have to think that we're creating Q or, you know, somewhere <laughs> like that. We're, you, it's okay to have a mix. I mean, you know, I suppose yeah. some people are really keen on lawns. My husband seems desperate to, to mow it whenever possible. And I keep telling him that we need a wildlife space. Um, but you need to have a garden that reflects the needs of your family and that can change over time. So so I think this, what I love about, about your approach, Matt, is this idea that you can do you know, small things that make a big difference, really practical things. You know, you can have set yourself a small compost heap up. You can reuse old baked bean tins. There's all sorts of practical tips in the book, but but also the idea that actually it's okay to have a go. It's okay to experiment. It's okay to fail. And part of this is, is it, it, it should move and change with you as you grow as a gardener or as your needs of a, as a family or, or a residence grow. And I think that's really important, isn't it? Allowing people that flexibility to, to just have a go and do things an experiment. And Bridget, I love the idea that you spent two years turning your barren lawn into a wildlife haven. Let's hope the people are moving after you appreciate all, all the pollinated plants. But I was really taken by your point about patience, because that's absolutely key in both gardening, but also in appreciating the wider natural world, isn't it? We have to be patient because these things don't happen instantly. They don't happen instantly. And I'm an impatient person, so it hasn't been easy for me. And uh, in fact, because I'm impatient, because I've waited all of this time um, for the results, um, as it were, and I'm having to leave right at the time that that it's all happening. Um, and, and I'm I'm spending, I mean, we moved to Cornwall at the end of this month, at the end of April. So I have three more weeks of this garden um, and I'm torn between packing and spending time just 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 lapping it up and um, and thinking right what worked what didn't work because the other thing that I think is really important is for me is I learn from my mistakes I learn so much more from my mistakes probably than I do from my so-called successes um, <laughs> so, so yeah it, it's and the when we the first thing we did actually I think it's possibly the most important thing you can do in whatever space you have is to make space for a pond. Um, and that was our, uh, when, when we did do a little, my husband is a gardener, so I'm, I'm, I'm quite lucky, you know, that's what he does as a living. Um, so we did a little design and um, we, we, I think, put the biggest pond you possibly can um, for the size of the garden. And we have a pond, well, it's not a pond, we have a, an old ice cream tub on our allotment as well, because that's all that we can put on an allotment. But but wherever I go, I think now that will always be my that that will be the center, um, kind of the center of the universe, the center of the universe that is the garden is is a garden pond because it, it kind of all spirals out from there. And if we so Matt was talking about incorporating permaculture principles um, earlier, and I've been thinking more recently, um, not as our house as zone zero or the center of the permaculture garden but at the pond um, and everything radiating out and interlinking um, with, with what happens in and around the pond so so that's been that's been an interesting change yeah I've changed a lot in my views I'm always open that's the other thing is being open to change never having your thoughts or ideas set in stone so um, we had for instance allowed a small patch of our um, the, the lawn to grow into grasses and we sowed some wildflower plugs. We, we sowed yellow rattle first to help everything on its way. And we decided that we would leave our grass um, and the wildflowers to go to seed because I love to see the goldfinches coming in over winter and feeding on all the seeds. But 
Uh, and that we did for the first year. But the second year, whereas I, I expected all of the, the wild perennials to, um, and, and to pop up again, and they didn't. And it's because, because of the way we chose to maintain our little mini wildflower meadow, because we didn't cut it down, um, so the nutrients all went back into the soil, which is not what's you know what, what some people advise. We benefited the birds, but we lost the wildflower meadow the next year. So, so I had some advice from someone in the know, someone who does things differently, who said, "Really, I, I know it's hard when there are still pollinators feeding on the flowers. My gosh, that's hard." But now is a good time to chop them down. I don't know what you think about that. Yeah, well, a wildflower meadow really is an agricultural process. Um, you'll, you'll very rarely get natural um, wildflower meadows in anywhere other than above tree lines or by um, coasts because it stops the succession. It stops it becoming um, scrub and then um, bush and then onto trees and forests. So the reason we've lost them all is because um, agricultural practices change dramatically. Um, and so you do have to be yeah, really interactive for a wildflower meadow. You do have to know like what you're, what you're doing and you can't just let it be. No. Um, it's really difficult. I mean, a lot of the pictorial meadows and all this, they're all annuals. So um, it's a completely different game. It's a, uh, it needs sort of arable tillage and ploughing every year for them to sort of come back which is really sort of against many people who sort of would want a wildflower meadow actually they wouldn't want to do that um so a perennial wildflower meadow is is quite a really difficult balance and quite difficult to keep going it requires things like yellow rattle to parasite on the grasses it requires an understanding of taking away the nutrient level as you say and is extremely long term <laughs> um but yeah that's that, that's the great thing you said about patience and gardening and, and and failing and keep trying um you know i have tried to make wildflower meadows out of lawns and failed like uh it's just not that easy it's, it's quite difficult and um you know you just have to keep going keep going keep trying um seed is fairly inexpensive so you, you can you can keep trying every year and, and just keep working your way through it but you must remember that a perennial wildflower meadow in a situation that you're bound to have, which is not going to be in a sort of highly nutritious area, is an agricultural process that you must be entirely involved in uh, every year. Matt, can we talk about soil a little bit? Because, you know, you talk, you, the sort of subtitle of your book is how to create beauty and biodiversity from the soil up. I mean, it, and you've talked about not digging. And that's interesting because last week on the pod, we, we were chatting to James Rebanks and he was talking about not ploughing. So, so you know, here I am, a god of a certain age, and and digging and double digging were kind of, you know, drummed into me. You dig and, you know, you, that lovely thing is when you put your spade and you turn it over and then there's a worm and then there's a, a robin or a blackbird. And <laughs> what, what do you mean by not digging? And, and how does that improve the quality of the soil or change the soil, perhaps, should I ask? Yeah, I think it's a good question to say, what do you mean? Because no dig um, gardening comes from the antithesis to tillage. Um, so, because it does confuse people, because does that mean you don't dig in a plant? You know, you go and buy one from the garden centre or nursery, do you not put it in the ground? It doesn't mean that. It, what it, what it's, it came from was the sort of agricultural processes of tillage and sort of trying to do things without doing that. So, uh, people like Charles Dowding and uh, Elliot Coleman in the USA are great proponents of this. And so, it comes down into gardening to say that in the veg sort of production area, if you leave the soil and sheep mulch, so if you take over ground that is, um, you know, pasture, let's say, uh, you don't touch it. You just lay cardboard over the top 
And then you lay all of your soil on top of that. And that is the beginnings of your veg bed um, because you want the microorganisms that are already present in the soil and in the roots systems and the fungi and all the um, mycorrhizal relationships that have developed over years, decades to, to not be diminished by what you're doing. And so you can take that approach out of the veg and into the more ornamental by just being quite careful and sort of thinking, okay, I'm just mulching. I'm not um, going to sort of dig over to aerate. Those kind of things are dying out a little bit. I think, you know, lots of people used to aerate the fruit trees. Um, they used to uh, fork underneath their fruit trees or, um, you know, fork clay soil, stuff like that. Um, I think you can just start to think more in the sense that in the natural world, there is no digging. I mean, there might be actually, there might be sort of ores or whatever, but it's it's never on the same level that we would go to uh, and the depth that we would go to. Generally, it's sort of, you know, leaf litter and, um, you know, fallen branches and, and dead animals are all just lying on the floor and they layer and layer and layer. And, and the soil is diminishing um, and it takes a very long time to grow, you know, organic matter, compost and mulching that all disappears within a year two year um it goes very quickly but soil oh my god building soil takes a very very long time the the fact is three centimeters in thousands of years i mean you know it's difficult to unwrap sort of stuff like that but it just says to you that it takes a very very long time so having a no dig ethos is to just say underneath my feet there is some extraordinary things going on some um, uh, networks and pathways that we're only just beginning to discover and the more we can let it be and let it do its own thing and just feed it organic matter like uh, re retain the moisture the better we can do and in terms of having the design, because many of us probably have quite small gardens, you know, so a wildlife I meadow yeah. is a wildlife <laughs> meadow is, is out for us, but maybe we yeah. could have a wildlife corner or a patch or a few logs in the corner that we haven't disturbed to provide some insect havens. I mean, how much would you advocate people design their gardens and how much would you say, just as, as you said, I, I loved what you said, Bridget, you know, you haven't had the the luxury of the wait and see, live with it for a year and see what pops up. I mean, how much is design important for both wildlife spaces, but also for, for human spaces? Yeah, well, that's the eternal balance. And um, it's also extremely difficult to write a gardening book, thinking of the wide spectrum of gardens. So, you know, uh, being a professional, I've worked in acres, you know, gardens of, of formal gardens of acres, um, down to sort of, uh, you know, my tiny postage stamp, facing north so um, I, I completely get it yeah yeah if you don't have space you don't have space that's it but uh, if you're trying to just do what a wildflower meadow is doing um, you could um, plant up some of the species that would be present in a wildflower meadow in pots um, you know ladies bed straw or bird's foot trefoil or or um, oxide daisies stick them in pots um, you know because the main reason for them is for wildlife um, they are beautiful as well so that's why they're fantastic and it's extremely saddening to not be able to go out and walk in the countryside and find one because you won't be able to find one <laughs> but um, I think in, in all tiny spaces, uh, you can only do what you can do. And, and um, I have uh, two small daughters, so I certainly know the practicality of uh, needing to design a garden that works for them and gives them space to sit on a rug and have some, um, you know, snacks um, and being able to sort of try and, and bring it into an ecological space that provides. So a vertical as well, always think vertical in, in small spaces, try and just use as much space as you've got. But it just goes back to 
don't don't feel like you have to do you know turn turn it into some sort of monty don wonderland just try your best one year give it a go get some seeds throw it in the soil you, you can't go wrong you know if you're trying you can't go wrong yeah great advice bridget we should talk a little bit about pollinators i mean it, you, your book your lovely book's out in paperback been out in paperback for some time so so obviously people are reading it and understanding and getting more concerned and hopefully more informed about what's happening to our pollinators how worried are you at the moment about our pollinators and the state of the environment for them well it's interesting because to to look at um the the quantity the diversity of pollinators in our garden i would think there's not a problem um but you know it's it's a garden designed to bring them in and it's in an area where there are plenty of other natural resources for them um but then you know i read i read the headlines i read some of the the papers that come out and um quite frankly terrified but but I think all we can do as as gardeners or as custodians of plots, you know, whether it's it's a garden, an allotment, or a, a, a window box, whatever, is is to do um, the best we can. And so, so I you know I started off gardening just for bees. That that was not a mistake. But um, I garden now more broadly for pollinators. And I I think about you know what 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 do flies want? Um, I think this is another thing. Bees are very very fortunate because they are. Um, when people think of bees, they think of bumblebees, don't they? The very cuddly, furry, uh, sort of pretty um, creatures and not of flies and other pollinators. So I think it's terribly important for us to go broad and not just to read books and plant what the books say, but to look at what's working in the garden next door, um, what's encouraging um, a certain sort of pollinator in the garden next door. And can you can you add to that or what's missing? Uh, and also to, to provide so important to provide foraging nectar and pollen rich plants throughout the year now because um, as well as habitat loss and uh, overuse or use of and especially overuse of pesticides there's also climate change it is, is increasingly causing a big big problem we have um, bees and other insects coming out of their winter hibernation far earlier than they used to and far earlier than their their plants that, that they're used to foraging on are there. So, so by by selecting plants that are, and, and this sometimes controversial, maybe some of the non-native plants, we we have added quite a few non-native plants into the mix in our garden from autumn through to spring. And because the bees are there when they didn't use to be, and uh, there aren't as many native plants around then. And no, you're absolutely right. And I think that you, you're right to touch on climate change, because I mean, that's part of the motivation too for you, Matt, wasn't it, in writing your book? I mean, I think we've learned perhaps a couple of things during the pandemic. We've learned one, that we are very good at following rules if we're told to. And the other is that we desperately, desperately need our wild spaces and our and our outdoor spaces for our mental health, for our well-being, for the opportunity to just to do something that isn't to be sat inside staring at a screen, which was what many, many of us have had to do and others who've been furloughed and been desperate to get back to work. So, so we've learned that the gardens and, and the natural spaces are really, really important for us. But we've probably also become really aware that actually, as individuals, we're a bit helpless when it comes to tackling climate change. And we're a bit helpless about perhaps getting some of the things that we're passionate about onto that political agenda and getting the action we need. And, and Matt, I think that was part of the motivation behind your book, wasn't it? Wanting to write to say there is something you can do as an individual to help offset some of this. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think the um, debate probably rightly changed um, a couple of years ago 
um, around the release of the IPCC report and the IPBES and then, um, you know, groups like uh, Extinction Rebellion, they, they were making the right point that it had almost gone beyond the individual and into the realms of, you know, um, governments and business and institutions, because without, you know, countries like China and, and, and America doing the right thing, we, we are a bit sort of lost at sea. But I also, yeah, really agree that sort of, uh, there's a helplessness to that and a, and a doom laden sort of mindset to that. And also like a bit of a free card sometimes as well. So I thought up until that point, a lot of people had been quite individual in what they were doing, making sort of different choices in their lifestyles. And um, I, I, yeah, I didn't, I didn't think losing that thread was the right way. It was certainly worthwhile talking about the wider picture, but you needed both. And um, the way to get away from the sort of uh, impending doom sort of that w- w- comes with that idea of reading reports that we were reading and then seeing governments not moving at the pace that we were hoping um, can be sort of abated by, by doing things yourself with your own hands. Because if you keep thinking, oh, well, this is only going to be 0.00, it's ridiculous. It's it's more just like saying, hey, look, I'm moving on and what I'm doing could be passed down through the generations and can be, you know, my children will watch the way I garden and they'll watch these skills that I've learned now. And that's maybe even more important, but yeah, I definitely wanted to put the the keys back in people's hands. hundred percent. That was a, a motivation. Mm. And I think it's about having agency, isn't it, over the, the land that we're living in. And and very often you talk about um, farmers and, and how they've moved away from landscape friendly farming and pollinator friendly farming. But I think there's a shift actually in a lot of the farmers that we talk to and have done over the, the, the years on Planet Pod is they're interested as well in making sure the land is enriched. And they are planting wildflower margins and they have been doing for years and years, just no one's noticed. And we haven't been 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 aware of that so so we've actually this sense of what can we do in our spaces as individuals what can we do with our voices collectively to try and put pressure on government and policymakers to to look differently at the landscapes and and how can we have agency in our own space and you know it's really interesting Bridget hearing you talk about your allotment because 50 years ago allotments were plentiful and they were protected and people could get them and they were a vital source both of increased access to to vegetables and food, but also for people, you know, very often a place to escape and a place for balance and reflection. And now, you know, they're seriously under threat, um, along with other public green spaces. I mean, we've got really at a crisis point, aren't we, in terms of our relationship with the landscape. And it won't just be the pollinators that suffer. It'll be all the other things that the pollen that depend on the pollinators for the for for their for their existence, the food train. So so we're at a we're at a, a pivotal moment, aren't we really, in terms of, of where we are and what we can do. We are, and I know it's interesting um, what you say about the allotments because the allotment waiting lists have just gone through the roof. Um, you know, we're lucky we, we still have our little allotment and um, allotments are interesting. Gardens are often, uh, you, you, don't, you don't have that high visibility of everybody's gardens apart from their little front garden patches. But with allotments, um, it, it's, allotments are a great way, if you're lucky enough to have one, to um, to influence other people, you know, they're empowering um, in, in themselves just just to have a plot of land. Um, we we took on our allotment when we didn't have a garden, um, as it happened. And our, our allotment, we, we do grow vegetables and fruit, but uh, in in every single available place, 
we we interplant with flowers um, with with flowering plants and um, oh, okay we have this little tub um, we've put down a sheet of corrugated iron in a very sunny spot you know we keep the comfrey back off it um, so that it stays sunny and we have uh, slow worms and even grass snakes have come to, wow. to take advantage of the um, the corrugated iron and what's great about it being allotment an allotment is that people walk past and they ask about it and we've seen the odd little sheet of corrugated iron popping up elsewhere and people say so where can you get the corrugated iron what and do you do with the corrugated iron why yeah. is that important animals cold-blooded um sort of reptiles amphibians they need sun they need warmth to warm them up so that they can move and um in the case of the the slow worms and the grass snakes to, to hunt and uh, something like a piece of corrugated iron but it could just as soon be a piece of slate or an old piece of carpet um, or, or even you know thick black plastic but if you lay it down in a sunny position and we always put it on top of grass as it is and then it kills the grass underneath and and mice move in and little holes are dug and probably a few rats as well underneath it but the slow worms and grass snakes if they're in the area come and they take advantage they warm up they come so sunbathe effectively literally sunbathing they they get <laughs> way more heat you often see them um i mean we see them on the the little concrete path in our garden sometimes as well because that warms up but it's it's such an easy thing to do um, and and because we've done it and because we're in this open um, area that that is the allotment uh, other people are taking it on and 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 asking about it as as they do about the plants um, so we've watched very slowly, bit by bit, um, other plots are starting to incorporate more flowers um, in, in, you know, instead of just the rose. Not everybody. And there are still people who use herbicides and spray everything off before they start um, planting every year. But, yeah, I, I, I don't know where things are going to go with this because the I, I, they literally are. There are dozens of people um, on the list for our allotments and you know allotment holders are not going to be giving them up so mm. I think it's this is something that's terribly important especially with a surge of interest in firstly growing your own food but secondly um, creating space uh, wild space for wildlife I, I think it's going to be very important that somehow councils or local authorities find more space um, for all of these people who are so keen rather than just at the moment, what they're doing is they're reducing the sizes of the plots. Plots are being reduced um, in size bit by bit to um, to make them available for more people. But yeah, we need to have a bit of reclaiming of some of those kind of wild margins. And I know there's a lot of movements like the sustainable food movement who encourage places, particularly places like Bristol, where they encourage people to plant vegetables and crops and fruit trees in bits of what would have just been verges or, or bits of wasteland. But 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 we need more of those. And 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 you said, Matt, you know, three million new gardeners, probably as a result of the lockdown. One of the few things that's been open recently have been garden centres. It's the end of April. People will be rushing out to the garden centre to buy things. What can people do rather than just buy a lot of those forced um, plants that have come in big plastic pots? What can people do practically to both support garden centres, but more importantly, to make their gardens a bit more wildlife friendly? I mean, what would you advise people who might be visiting a garden centre at the weekend to be doing or, or not to be doing, almost as importantly? Well, yeah, that's an interesting point, isn't it? Because, um, yeah, you do need to support uh, the growers um, and the industry. But, you know, I think 
there's there's a big movement in seed collectives and stuff that I really like. But yeah, if, you, if you're going to the garden center, let's say, the pollination is really important. I've followed that and I do agree with it 100%. Um, you know, you need sort of flowering perennials and stuff throughout the throughout the year to help our pollinators. Um, but it is also true that um, native plants are planted far less than they've ever been planted before and evidence sort of from RHS studies and um, Douglas Tallamy in the USA have been really good on this showing that it can be the biomass of the uh, amount of wildlife insect generally that need and rely on the native um, plants is far larger than we've ever really realized um, because they go unseen generally. Um, so I would always encourage people to try them, you know, try uh, seeking out the um, native plants. But I think, you know, it is about liberty of choice and it is about, um, you know, saying, well, I would I'd much prefer people go and just buy some, buy some beautiful plants that they love to put in their garden that are going to sort of flower their pants off and do stuff for pollinators. And then if they get some natives as well, it's a perfect mix. Uh, I'd certainly sort of hope that people would begin to move away from um, tropical bedding that sort of, it takes a lot of energy uh, to make them. They're completely cultivated away from anything that's going to be useful to any kind of wildlife. And, and and that's the crux of sort of thinking that biodiversity is when you have a garden just full of flowers. It's not because you could have a garden full of petunias and, and salvias in hanging baskets and it looks biodiverse, doesn't it? But it's, it's not, it's completely um, a barren for that. So I think also, um, and it's been good that it's been in the news 100% seek out and look very, very, very closely um, if you're buying bags of compost, if you haven't made your own for peat free and even then go a step further and say, um, although there's very unlikely that they won't have it, they try to not have them full of fertilizer because obviously extracting uh, nitrogen from the air is, is, is an extremely energy inefficient process. Um, and so, and you don't really need it. Uh, you don't need overly sort of um, fertilized composts and soils. You just seriously don't need it. But if it, that, again, I have to couch that by saying, don't, don't stop yourself from ever buying things and starting things. If this is the first time you've ever gardened, I have to imagine that, then please, yeah, go out and have fun. Buy, buy lots of plants, buy your soils and, um, and learn as you go along and, um, and seek them out, you know, and try and buy in groups. You know, that, that's a classic mistake is that people will go and buy at one time of the year, usually around now, or, and, and then they won't buy any other time so their whole garden is just sort of the flowering plants that the retailers and nurseries are trying to sell now which is generally the plants that are in flower now so um try and buy in batches throughout the year and, and groups and, and just try and space it out yeah yeah and you can save your own seed can't you i mean you don't have to leave it all for the birds you can you can collect seed and re-sow it the following year and there's all oh, sorts of things absolutely. you can do yeah and seed swap and and you know chat to your neighbors and all of those things Bridget, do you have a call to action for people? One thing you'd like listeners to do to support the bees and the other pollinators? I mean, you know, I'm immediately getting a bit of a corrugated arm sticking it in the corner of my garden, but something that, you know, we can all do, whether it's, I don't know, signing a petition or just, just choosing the right sort of plant to put in our small plot. What would be your call to action? Well, I'd agree 100% with Matt to, to up your quantity of native plants for all the reasons that, that he just said. And one way you can do that, if you don't want to, because as we've obviously um, learned, these these uh, maintaining the maintaining of a wildflower meadow is not easy. But what you can do is, if you let your grass grow a little bit longer, um, and you don't need to 
to even you know sow seeds or plugs. Somehow um, little vetches and selfies and clovers um, will, will gradually arrive and just allow those small sort of very, very short plants to flower because they are native and they are fantastic uh, resources for all manner um, of, of, of insects, invertebrates. Um, and then the other thing which Rats already mentioned, but um, is is the peat free? This is peat free April. Um, so is it? No, I didn't know that. Peat free April. This has never been um, a better time to get out there and join the campaigns to have peat banned um, from 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 being sold. I know it's, again that's extreme, but um, you, you know it's beggar's belief that we're in what's twenty twenty one now, aren't we? And and you still can go to some garden centres and not find peat-free. Um, yeah, it's very difficult to find. And sadly, it's always more expensive. Um, but but you're absolutely right. We need our peat bogs and it's a scandal. And many people wouldn't even know that the, the compost they were buying wasn't, you know, had peat in it. So having a peat-free month is wonderful. Yeah. Um, thank you both so much. Is We could talk for hours and that's always the way when you talk to people who love plants and gardening and the wild wild spaces. So a huge thank you to you both. And, and I would say to listeners, get yourself a copy of The Ecological Gardener, which has just come out. And if you haven't read Bridget's beautiful book, Dancing with Bees, you really need to. If you're not buying them direct from Chelsea Green, here's my plug. Please buy them from either your local bookstore or The Hive online um, and support a local bookstore um, because they need our help. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you both. Thank you so much for being our guests. Matt and Bridget, thank you. Thank you. Um, a huge thank you to Chelsea Green for supporting the programme and to Jim, our producer, as always. Um, if you like what you hear, you can catch more episodes of the podcast on theplanetpod.com or why not subscribe and then you'll never miss an edition and it'll pop into your inbox using your favourite podcast app. We have a Patreon programme and we'd love your support and your suggestions and you can follow us, of course, on Insta and Twitter. Thanks so much for listening. And as they say in the gardener's world, happy gardening and goodbye. Planet Pod is brought to you by Akil Management. My thanks to our producer, Jim Haywood, and our researcher, Beth Palmer. And to you, our listeners, without you, we'd be very lonely. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at planet underscore pod or visit our website, please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you with ideas for future programmes. Thanks for listening.